Welcome to the online sermons at King Street Church. Feel free to listen or watch online at kingstreetchurch.com. We're located at 162 East King Street in the heart of Chambersburg, PA, and would love to see you in person at one of our five Sunday services at 8.15, 9.45, or 11 a.m. We certainly hope you enjoy this morning's message. Well, as Jesus would go into villages and preach, what we see over and over again is he had a basic approach, and that approach was to simply tell stories. And then after a story, which we now often call parables, uh, which were examples from all around, from nature and things that they would have seen, he would simply conclude a, a parable, a story, with the words, whoever has ears, let them hear. Listen to the heartbeat of what he's saying is basically what he meant when he would say that. Listen. Lean in. Well, I want to begin today with a parable. This parable is called the Big Red Tractor, and it's by Francis Chan, who has authored uh, the curriculum that we've been using uh, along with this seven-week study in the Holy Spirit. And Francis Chan wrote this parable. I'm wondering if it wasn't specifically related to this particular week, which is uh, God at work in the church in a supernatural way. Once upon a time, in a happy little village, a big red tractor lived in a cozy little shed. Every morning during plowing season, the villagers would come out and start the red tractor. Everyone loved the tractor and the powerful noises it would make. They would cheer for the big red tractor because he would help them through plowing season. The people worked together to move the tractor. Half of the villagers would push from behind while the other half would pull. They'd been doing it this way for many generations. Some days they moved the tractor 10 feet. Other days, 20 feet. They did this for three whole months every year. Because of their hard work, the villagers always managed to plow the field just in time to plant, just before the rainy season. The rains would come to water the field. The sun would come out and make the crops grow. And then the people would come out to harvest all the new crops. It was always just enough to feed the entire village. Then one cold day, something amazing happened. Farmer Dave was cleaning out his attic and discovered a book tucked inside an old chest. It explained how the tractor had been made and it showed powerful things no one knew he could do. Farmer Dave stayed up all night reading the book. He couldn't wait to tell everyone what he had discovered. He was shocked by what he was reading. According to the book, if the big red tractor was running properly, it could plow the whole field in just one day. Early the next morning, Farmer Dave gathered the villagers to tell them the good news. But nobody believed him. There's no way the tractor could move on its own, some said. One lady said, it sounds like you're reading a fairy tale. The people laughed at him. And this made Farmer Dave very sad. But this didn't stop Farmer Dave from believing what he read. 
Every night while the other villagers were asleep, Farmer Dave spent time repairing the big red tractor. One night, Farmer Dave fixed the tractor completely. He jumped on the tractor and had so much fun driving it, he ended up plowing the whole field in just one night. The next morning, the villagers woke up and were in shock. The whole field had been plowed. It's a miracle, one man said. Maybe aliens came down, said an old lady. No, look over there, a little boy shouted. It was Farmer Dave sleeping on the tractor. It was then that the people shouted. He was right. The tractor book is true. The villagers ended up plowing many fields that year and harvesting way more food than they could ever eat. They had so many leftovers, boxes of food, that they began taking these boxes to other other villages where food was scarce. The big red tractor and his little village soon became famous throughout the land. They became known as the most generous and life-giving people in the whole wide world. The story of Farmer Dave and the Big Red Tractor. Well, I want to tell you right now, this story, although it is a parable, actually happens. In fact, I have seen it or am aware of this parable happening. The Big Red Tractor, of course, is the church and the the power is the Holy Spirit and and the, the crops are uh, the fruit that is born. And I have seen this in a place called Burkina Faso. I want to tell you another story. This one's a true story, not a parable. It's uh, about a family. When I was uh, back in 2003, I moved out to Washington State to pastor a church in a place called Moses Lake. It was a CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And, and uh, when I got there in 03, the, the church family was really praying for this, for this unique family called the Obergs. Here's a picture of Kevin and Bonnie and their four children, two sons and two daughters. And the church was fervently praying for them, especially because Bonnie was raised in the church. She was a child of the church and came through the children's and youth departments, went off to college, met this big strapping 6'6 farmer of a guy from Dallas, Oregon named Kevin. They got married and sensed God calling them into missions work. So they applied and went through the process and were stationed in a place called Burkina Faso. Let me give you a little more background. I'm a map guy. I love maps. I haven't shown you a map in a while, so here you go. Um, West Africa, of course, we have a significant work over along the coast in Sierra Leone, but, but in this place, I honestly, till 2003, don't think I'd ever heard of it. But it's this country landlocked between Mali and Cote d'Ivoire and Benin called Burkina Faso. Well, Kevin and Bonnie and their, well, when they went, just two boys and then uh, two girls were, were later born, uh, they were stationed actually originally in a place called Wagadugu. Say that with me, Wagadugu. Great job. Then they ultimately were moved over to spend eight years in a city called Bobo Jalasso. 
great name. Say it with me. Bobo Jalasso. That's right. They lived in Bobo for, they called it Bobo, for eight years. And I'm going to give you one more village, a place called Endorala. Say it with me. Endorala. Right. Perfect. So uh, that's kind of a little backdrop to uh, the story of the Obergs. And let me tell it to you now in Bonnie's own words in an article she entitled, A Season of harvest. She said, when we stopped, stepped off the plane in August of 2000 into a hot and steamy Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, we came with two willing hearts, two little boys, and two words in French, we and merci. I guess yes and thank you are probably two of the most important things to have in your word bank as new international workers, but we had a long way to go. During our first term, we learned French, helped one of the Waga churches, added two little girls to our family, and then received the unexpected call from God to move to and work in this region right here. It's, uh, it's kind of, think of it as a county called the Kenadugu region. Say that with me. Kenadugu region. Right. You're learning a lot about Burkina Faso. Stuff you didn't even... Th- no, right, okay, hello. Place, we, uh, the Kenaduga region, a place uh, we were told had been resistant to the gospel for years. We really had no idea what we were getting into. We just trusted that God would make it clear as we moved forward and listened to His voice. One of the things God had impressed upon us was that we could not do the work alone. My husband was convinced that God had a thousand people who would join us on the adventure through prayer. So on our home assignment in 2004, before heading back to Kenadugu, we were uh, spent gathering the troops. Now, i got to tell you, like I said, I moved to Moses in 2003. In 2004, Kevin and Bonnie, of course, spent a little bit of time in Moses. That's where her parents, Bonnie's parents, lived. And Kevin was very uh, committed to seeing a thousand people, not just like casually say, yes, I'll pray for you, but to raise up, not just in my town, in our city, but around the Pacific Northwest, a thousand prayer warriors, people that would commit wholeheartedly to praying for the the work in the Kenadugu region every single day. And that's what Kevin did, and I remember it happening. As we flew back to Burkina after that year, God assured me that we, were not, that we were rather going back, quote, in force. It wasn't just our family on that, that plane. It was full of prayer warriors returning with us. It was a vision that stayed with me throughout the next eight years that we were in the Kenadugu. And God proved time and time again that the results we saw were because people were praying specifically for the work. We started slowly. Every Sunday, our family drove from Bobo Jalasso more than an hour up to the village of Endora Law to encourage and help the small church, which did not have a pastor. My husband preached. I taught Sunday school under a tree. During these years, my husband had also been working with a few other groups in the region who were requesting help. And as evangelism campaigns were held, it was obvious that this formerly resistant area was resistant no longer. People were responding to the gospel. 
New groups were being started in villages where there had never been a church, and the work had become more than we could handle. As time went by, the work exploded. Each church started looking to the villages around them in order to start new churches. Church planting was woven into the Kenadugu DNA. As soon as a new church was starting, they were looking outward and planting new churches, sometimes within months. The church had grown from two small congregations to over 50. In the Sepharaso area, there are now 15 new churches. I'll go off script and tell you that I, I know from really being very connected to this whole story. In fact, four of my kids have been to the Kenadugu region to build churches and to build pastors' homes to accommodate all that was happening. But what was happening is that people were hearing a message Hearing a message, new converts to Christ would hear a message and then the next Sunday they would go to the next village over and preach the message that they had heard the Sunday before in the next village and start a church and then go back, hear another sermon and the next Sunday would go and preach it in the next village over. And in the span of a few years, 50 churches were planted. We saw hundreds come to Christ. People were healed. Others were delivered from demonic oppression. Animistic leaders were burning their fetishes. Many times we were told by prayer supporters that what was happening was similar to the stories in the book of Acts. It was an international worker's dream. We can't help but rejoice as we continue to hear, and this is from a couple years ago, reports of what God is doing through His church. Many people coming to Christ. The church is strong and growing. God is powerfully at work. To have been a part of this for even a bit of time is something that we will always be grateful for. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That parable of the big red tractor church, that has lived out in the Kenadugu region. And what we learn from both of these stories is that it is according to the power of God that is at work within us. Listen to what Francis Chan says. He said, let's be honest. We could duplicate most of our successful churches by assembling the right group of talented, winsome people. If a church has the right worship leader, an exciting kids program, an entertaining speaker, it will grow. But is that really the secret to life-changing ministry? Is that how God designed the church to operate? Where does the Holy Spirit fit in that model? As much as I believe in using our natural abilities... For God's glory, I simply cannot reconcile that model with the Lord's statement, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. All our natural talents come from God. I'm not trying to downplay using your gifts and abilities, but if our lives and our churches make perfect sense in the light of human strength and talent, then something is missing. I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. 
I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this by my own power. I want to live in such a way that I am desperate for God to come through. Amen. You know, we see stories in Scripture over and over again of this kind of thing happening. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about a prophet named Elijah living in the land of Israel, but in a time when the prophets of Baal and, and the false prophets that worshipped the various demonic gods of the Baals and Asherah poles, Elijah had enough and he said, all right, it's time for a showdown. You know the story? And he called the people together up on the top of Mount Carmel. And he said to them, you know what? If your God is really the God, then let him prove it. And if my God is the God of hosts, then I'll let him prove it. And he called out to the 450, about the amount in this room right here, here in the Baker Center. He said, uh, you 450 prophets of Baal, he said, I want you to cry out to your God. You know the story, right? From 9 a.m. to noon, they marched around the altar. They prepared an animal and put it on the altar and uh, were waiting for fire from God to consume the animal. And they danced around for three hours. And at noon, Elijah steps out and he says, oh, okay, he starts to taunt him, a little trash talk. He said, oh, you're God. He might be taking a nap right now. Is that it? Take a little lunch break? And they turned it up a notch. And not only did they dance around and sing and yell and chant, but they started cutting themselves. They started self-mutilating in order for their God to come down. And finally at 3 o'clock, after six hours of this, Elijah said, enough. He said, I want to, he prepared an animal and put it on a very makeshift altar. He said, I want you to take four jugs, big jugs of water, and douse this sacrifice. They did it. He said, do it again. Eight jugs. Do it again. Twelve jugs. There was a, a pool of water all around it. And then what happened? Fire came from God and consumed the sacrifice, in fact, we read, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things, God, at your great command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God that you are turning their hearts back again. Then fire fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the soil licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, Lord, he, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. I'm going to tell you one more story. And that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Grab your Bible or your handheld and, and follow along with me because it's exactly the same story uh, that we read in 1 Corinthians 18, that we read about in the parable, that we just read about, that I read for you from Bonnie Oberg. It's the same story when Paul went to a city called Corinth, which at the time, Corinth was probably, I would compare it to like a, a, a Vegas 
It was a very worldly city. It was probably the capital of sensuality. There was a, 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 a temple built on this high point overlooking the city. This temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. 2,000 prostitutes worked in that temple. They would come down into the city of Corinth every night. Paul went into Corinth and planted a church. A place formerly, if you will, resistant to the gospel. Look at what Paul writes. Go back in verse 17. And he says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those perishing. But those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, though its wisdom, did not come to know Him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom for God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was, Paul says, with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I want us to see a parallel, a thread running through all the stories that I've told you today. Farmer Dave stayed up all night reading the book. He couldn't wait to tell everyone what he discovered. Shocked by what he was reading. According to the book, if the bid-reg tractor was running properly, it could plow the whole field in just one day. 
Bonnie Oberg said, one of the things that God impressed upon us was that we couldn't do this work alone. My husband was convinced that God had a thousand people who would join us on the adventure through prayer. We read in 1 Kings 18, Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. And Paul said, my message, my preaching, not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. All right, I'm going to bring this home to each and every one of you right now. Here's the question I want to ask you. What is it? What might God be calling you to do? That unless He does it, it simply won't happen. What is it right now? As you listen to the voice of God, as His Spirit is right here, what is it that God might be, is in fact, calling you to do, calling you to give, calling you to act on, that unless God comes through, it simply won't happen? That's the question. And I want to drive this home with one last story. Right now, as you know, we're collecting shoeboxes. Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. <laughs> Our goal is 2,000. Grab a box, let's fill it up, let's get this thing done, church. But I want to tell you a quick story. That ministry was really adopted and blown, the roof blown off of it through Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham. But I want to tell you a quick story. <laughs> Because Franklin Graham, in 1993, early in the year, 24 years ago, had gotten a call from this ministry in Bosnia. They had just come through a civil war, and this ministry, just a fledgling little group that wanted to do these shoeboxes, they called them or wrote them, contacted Franklin and said, would Samaritan's Purse be willing to send some shoeboxes? Franklin said, sure and then promptly forgot about it. Until July, when the person called him back and said, oh yeah, we need those shoe boxes in about a month so that we can give them out this, this coming Christmas. Franklin Graham, at that point, thought, okay. So he made a phone call to a friend of his named Ross Rhodes, pastor of Calvary Church in Charlotte. And he said, Ross, I need a favor. He said, would your church be willing to, to put toys and, and goodies together in a shoebox, wrap it up, and get them to us so that I can make good on this promise in Bosnia? But Franklin did more than that. He pulled his whole team together, and they decided to go as big as they possibly could. And Calvary Church came through huge. I'm not even sure how many boxes they came through, but it was thousands. And so they went over. In fact, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, organized that very first giveaway because at the time he was Franklin Graham's director of development. And they went over and gave out those shoe boxes, and it went incredibly well. The next year they gave out more. The following year more. And it has exploded to the point of over 100 million shoe boxes going out in the name of Jesus Christ 
in these last 24 years. But I want to tell you this, that Franklin Graham operates, operates under a basic philosophy that he calls, well, he didn't actually call it this. It's called God room. God room. And God room is the belief that when we attempt things so great that only God can pull it off. That's how Samaritan's Purse operates every day. They make promises that they, unless God comes through, can't even begin to keep. The challenge I want to give you today is where is that God room in your life? What is God calling you to do that unless He does it, it simply won't happen? Would you bow with me right now? Our Father, we humble ourselves before You. And God, we know that You are the God and Creator of this universe. Lord, we confess that we quite often are simply trying to pull and push the tractor on our own strength. That we're trying to accomplish things in our own power. And God, right now, we confess, we repent. And we ask, Lord God, individually and as a church, that You would reveal Yourself to us. That we would be attempting things given to us by you, God. This isn't what we're off doing on our own. God, this is listening to your Spirit. Things that unless you accomplish them, simply won't happen. God, this requires sacrifice. It requires faith. God, it requires prayer, stepping out in faith, Lord God. And I pray right now that you would speak to us. By your Spirit, speak to us. What is it, God? What are you calling us to do? Your spirit is in this place. You're moving right now. And I pray, God, that we would listen and that we would live and operate by this basic life principle of God room. God, what is it? What is it that unless you do it, it simply won't happen? Help us, Lord, to walk by faith. We hope you enjoyed this morning's message. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to contact us using our online form on our website at kingstreetchurch.com or by calling us here at 717-264-4651 during our regular business hours. Be sure to stop by and see us in person at one of our five Sunday morning services, 8.15 a.m., 2 at 9.45 a.m., as well as 2 at 11 a.m. We look forward to seeing you there.